Good morning. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up. To, uh, Luke chapter 10 is actually where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We're in a series entitled Acts, and what we're doing is we're studying the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament right after the four Gospels. And what the book of Acts does is it tells the story of the continued acts of Christ after he ascended up into heaven. And he continued those acts through his Holy Spirit, through his apostles, and his church. And we're taking our time. We've made it to verse 12 in seven weeks. And so uh, right now where we're at is kind of a series within the series that we're titled Positioning for Power. And what this little series within the series is, is about how we position ourselves as followers of Christ to receive power. Now, when we talk about receiving power as Christians, when we talk about it individually, we mean transformation. What does it look like for uh, Christ to continue to change us? The doctrinal term for that is sanctification, to position ourselves to be continually transformed by the gospel. When we talk about positioning ourselves for power as a church or as a a group, uh, the word we usually use to describe that is movement or revival. And we want both. We want inward transformation, uh, and then we want outward corporate transformation. And so what we're doing, uh, based on Acts 1, 12 through 14, is walking through these three Ps, being in the right place, surrounded by the right people, doing the right practices. And when those three Ps are present then, we have positioned ourselves for power. And what we did in the first few weeks of this, I have this chart that we're walking through right now. And this is the um, definition, or as we're describing, the right place. And so the first thing that makes the right place is a place of biblical truth, doctrine, sound doctrine, as contrasted to heresy, which is teaching of false doctrine. The second line then was week two of this, uh, and that is to believe and to proclaim and to preach a true gospel, of course, as contrasted to false gospels. Now, last week I said that today we were going to go through weeks three, four, and five. I lied. We're going to hit week three. Okay, wasn't an intentional lie, just started writing the sermon and decided we needed to spend a full week on week number three. This now puts our sermon series in Acts ending in 2030. So we're going to keep journeying on and we'll see what God has for us this morning. The ordering of these five is, is important and was intentional. And all of them are important and all of them make the right place. But our quest this morning uh, is to remind ourselves of the incredible importance of biblical gospel love. Heresy, the teaching of false doctrine, and then its contrast, the teaching of sound doctrine, is unbelievably important. That's why I put it first. And the teaching of a false gospel is so dangerous because when you teach a false gospel, it strips the gospel of its power, therefore limiting its ability or destroying its ability to bring transformation. And so proclaiming the true gospel is very important. But as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, a passage of scripture that you have probably heard read at wedding after wedding after wedding, when you read it in its original context, it's part of a five-chapter sequence in 1 Corinthians that are the most clear laid out passages on how the church is supposed to operate. And so it's not wrong to read 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, but in its most appropriate context, it is a chapter on how the church is supposed to operate in love. And so 
I think as a church over the last 18 months or so, we have done a good job and we have taken great effort to make sure that in the midst of the craziness in which we live right now, um, that we hold on to believing in the Bible. We do believe the Bible. We believe it's as relevant today as the day that it was written. Uh, We believe that it is um, complete and full, sufficient, uh, and that we need to study it and to learn it and to apply it to every part of our lives. We believe in true and solid doctrine. We believe in a true gospel that uh, by Christ alone, faith alone, and grace alone, that we come into our salvation. But we cannot forget about love And it would be easy, uh, and particularly right now, uh, just to be known or to want to be known as the church that's for good doctrine, the church that preaches the Bible. And I hope that, I don't care what other people think of us, but I hope that here in in our place uh, that we all hold that conviction strongly. But today we must remind ourselves, if we have all of those things, but we have not love, we are nothing. And so today what I want to do is just remind ourselves of the biblical gospel picture of love. And I want to do it through four filters. And I won't be able to apply each filter to each of my points this morning. And so I'll allow the Holy Spirit to do that in some ways. But the four filters that I want to look at it through is this. First, what does it mean for us to love each other? Those who would call redemption their home church. Well, how do we love each other? Secondly, what does it look like for people who are new, who are on that, we're looking for a church quest. What does it look like for us to love them well? Third, what does it look like for people who would walk into our doors who don't agree with us, who uh, don't agree with our doctrine, who who don't agree with our um, strict belief in the scriptures? What does it look like for us to love them well? And, And then fourthly, what does it look like for us to leave this place as followers of Christ, as members of Redemption Church, and to love well as we go? And so we want to look at this story this morning through each of those four filters because they're each important. And we'll do that by looking at uh, one of the most famous stories in the scripture about love. As a setup, I think it would be easy for people to walk into our doors uh, as a church and to say, wow, I really like what they did with this lobby. It it looks really modern and it's really nice. And then to come in to the auditorium and to to listen to the music and uh, the quality of the musicians and uh, and the voices and to go, wow, this music is really good. And it is. Uh, And then to listen to me preach and go, well, at least he preaches from the Bible, right? How good it is or effective, I'll let you determine that. But like, at least he's opening up the scriptures. I like that. And and for some of you, that would be enough to say, you know what? This is going to be my church. It it looks good. It kind of feels good. It sounds good. I haven't heard anything crazy yet. It's not that boring. Like, this could be my church. But then I think there would also be a lot of people, particularly people who are new, who would come in and they could go through that same sequence of of events and get to the question, I think we all probably ask when we associate or identify ourselves with a group of people for a long period of time, but will they love me? Will they love me when life goes bad? Will they love me if I don't fully agree? Will they love me? If I'm down and out, will they love me if I mess up? Will they love me if I'm in great need? Will they love me if I look different? Will they love me if I commit one of those top five Christian sins that you're not allowed to commit? Will they love me 
then? When life gets hard, will they be there? When I'm celebrating, will they join along with me or be jealous? Will they love me? And I think we would all ask this as we begin to think about uh, making church a family. See, the opposite of no love, that was the wrong place. The opposite, or the, the right place then is, is church as a family and family as a place of love. And so I think we all would ask that as we think about engaging in this church long-term, I think anyone who is new would eventually then uh, be uh, posed with those same questions. Like, yes, it's all good, it looks good, it feels good, but will they love me? And then I think those who would walk in here, who do not care about our doctrine, who do not agree with our stances, and, and of course, I'm not suggesting in any way that we change that or that we have to give in on what we believe. I think we've made that pretty clear. But in it, we cannot forget to love. Well, we love them. And then lastly, as we leave this place, will you love all those that you come across? Not just those who are on the same team, not just uh, those who say, yeah, you know what? I might come to your church someday because I like what you guys are doing over there. But regardless if they ever did that or ever agreed with you, will you love them? Will we love them. Let me say this another way. Will we be, if we did care about this, no, not just as a church of great doctrine, uh, a church that preaches truth, but a church that loves. Paul tells us to be known as the church of great doctrine, the, the church that preaches the scripture, but to not have love. You're not great. You're not winning. Don't clap yourself on the back. You, according to Paul's words, are nothing. You are nothing. We're nothing. I don't want us to be nothing. So today, we look at this story, and we allow the, the gospel, um, I hope, to break into our hearts and to remind, uh, remind us of this beautiful love. So we're in Luke chapter 10. If you have a, a Bible, you can journey along with me as we look at this famous story on love. Starting in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A fair question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so Jesus gets into a conversation with a lawyer and not... Uh, unsurprising, the, the lawyer uh, knows the law. And so what does the lawyer do? He recites the law back to Jesus. Uh, he says, this is what you have said I must do. And so let me now just repeat to you that this is what I'm doing. And Jesus says, yes, you have answered correctly. And had the lawyer just stopped there for a second, uh, the story really wouldn't be all that incredible. It would just be a reminder of the two great commandments, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the lawyer, as they do, just kept pressing. And so the lawyer then says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, desiring to make sure that Jesus knew that he was doing correctly or that he would do correctly from here on out. By the way, the lawyer desiring to justify himself is just the indicator that the lawyer doesn't really understand the gospel because as we talked about last week, you cannot justify yourself. Justification comes from Christ alone, by faith alone, and grace alone. And so the lawyer is trying to justify himself, which is an indicator he doesn't get the gospel. 
But so he pushes Christ and he says, okay, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? The statement really is this, okay, but who do I have to love? Because there's a couple people that I'd like to just put on the outside of however big this circle is. And some of us, actually, because of how we've walked through life or because of what life has thrown at us, what we have tried to do is to draw the smallest circle that we can and just say, I'm going to stand in this circle and just love the people that can fit in this. Because I've been out there and I've tried to love and I've tried to love him and I've tried to love her and I've tried to love them and it hurt me. Uh, And so now what I want to do is just close up and I'm just going to love a small group. And The lawyer does want to make sure that he's okay before God, so he says, okay, so who do I have to love? Or in this way, who is my neighbor, according to the question? And then Jesus gets in to this famous story. Now, uh, it has been preached often, and and many of you have probably heard stories uh, on this, uh, of of the cultural context of what's going on in this parable and and how the dangers of the uh, travel uh, that the man is going to take. And there is a lot going on here culturally and historically that really gives us like this beautiful, clear picture of this parable. And I'm not going to unpack all of that this morning because I think there are some very simple truths uh, to learn more on the surface of the story where we don't necessarily even need to dive into all of the cultural context of what's going on here. And just to see the simple truths as laid out in the story. So here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus sets up the story by simply saying this. There was a man who found himself down and out, out of his luck. He's now beaten and downtrodden. We can, of course, see into the metaphor of the story a little bit. There was a person, male or female, that was out. They were hurting. Uh, They weren't a part of the group. They were down by themselves. They were isolated. They went on the journey of life. And as they were on that journey, uh, life beat them up. And there they found themselves feeling isolated and alone and hurting. And Jesus is setting up the question then of, okay, so who has the answer for the hurting person? Who can come across the person who is obviously in great need of love and who can properly love this person? Ah, what will religion have to say to the person? For it is here that Jesus starts, obviously a direct connection to the religious lawyer. And so Jesus starts off by simply describing somebody that would have been like the lawyer. He says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. And so what Jesus does is he picks two people that were of high religious pedigree, and he says, how will they respond to the man who is down and out? Now, from a cultural perspective, I'll get into this a little bit. If there were two people who should have had an obligation to help the Jewish man who's down on the side of the road, it should have been these two individuals. They had every reason to help. Now, there were, of course, a few reasons not to help, right? Like time and energy and money. And, uh, you know, if robbers beat him up, maybe somebody else, uh, the robbers will, will, will 
still there. And if they stop to, uh, be, uh, to help him, that they might get attacked. And so there's some of these things like playing around in the background of the story. But as you see through the story, what clearly happens is neither of them stop. There is not a compelling enough reason. There is not a strong enough conviction for these two individuals who knew the law, but apparently have yet to be transformed by it who, uh, to stop and to help and to love. For if the lawyer knew the law, certainly the priest and the Levite knew to love their neighbor as themselves. And if the neighbor is hurting and in pain, in great need, near death, wouldn't the priest and wouldn't the Levite, if they were in that situation, wanted somebody to have stopped? What's Jesus poking at there? He's saying, you can know the law and not be transformed by it. You can know the scriptures and not be transformed by them. Let me take it a step further. You can quote the scriptures and not be transformed by them. Jesus is posing here. Of what good is it to know the scriptures? Of what good is it to quote the scriptures if it doesn't in that moment cause you to stop? What good is it, Redemption Church, for us to be here and to stand on truth and to preach the word of the gospel and to shoo out all heresy and to proclaim a true gospel and to exercise spiritual gifts and to usher in the presence of the Spirit on a Sunday morning if it does not compel us to stop and love? If it does not compel us to form here as a church, a family, if it doesn't give us eyes to see those who would be walking in that are new, if it doesn't make us uh, then ask for a spiritual eye to see those who walk in and go, man, it might seem like they don't agree or believe with uh, what we do, but I love you. If it doesn't compel us to walk out of this place carrying this kind of love, what good are all of those things? What good are they? And so there is uh, Jesus suggesting to the lawyer that your knowledge means nothing. Your worship means nothing. Let me tell you what means something, Jesus says. So he goes on in telling the story. He says in verse 33, but a Samaritan. The quick understanding is this, that the Samaritan and the Jewish man uh, should have been sworn enemies. There was years of racial tension, centuries actually, of racial tension. Uh, They they were as separated as could be. Uh, Said in modern language, the Samaritan and the Jewish person or the Jewish man and the Samaritan man, they were the they that we so often talk about. You know what I mean by they? Like, oh, they are ruining everything. If they would just stop doing what they do, whatever group you're talking about, then society would be better. They're the ones who are ruining it. They who vote like that, they who act like that, uh, they who believe like that, they are the problem. And to the Samaritan, this man, he was his they. And so the Samaritan walks by, and how will he respond to his they. 
How will he respond to his thing? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Let me pause there for a second. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, this was not a mission trip. This was not like an intentional, I'm going to wake up today and be a good to a they. This was as he journeyed. He was just living his life. This was as he showed up to church each and every Sunday, as he left church and went and did whatever it is that you do between Sundays. This was just as he was going on in life. In other words, this kind of love is not supposed to be something that we have to say, okay, this is big love week. I'm going to intentionally be loving this week. I'm going to go on a mission trip um, so that I remind myself who my neighbor is. Uh, I'm going to, uh, this week, be really intentional about loving. No, this is a state of heart. This is a, a, a whole life transformation that as I journey and as I go, now I operate like this. I love like this. And so this was as the man journeyed, and this is for us supposed to be as we journey. And so as the Samaritan, as he journeyed, what happened? He came to where he was. This is the man on the street. He came to where he was, and when he saw him. So everything else that's going to happen next is going to be predicated on the fact that the man saw him. That's going to be first. And so what does gospel love do first? Gospel love sees. Gospel love sees. Gospel love sees each other. Gospel love sees the they. Gospel love sees who is new. Gospel love sees who is down and out. Gospel love sees as you journey through life and as you're uh, leaving this place and you're uh, you know, going to your kid's uh, sporting game and you're going to work and you're going out, that gospel love has these eyes to see See, if we want to be people who love the neighbor the way that we're instructed to do, the first thing we have to do is both practically and then through a spiritual lens, be better at seeing. Here uh, on Sunday mornings as a church family, then, uh, that is in some ways incredibly practical. Like, I just want to get better at seeing you. Like, some of you have seen each other kind of, right? But almost now you, you, we come in each and every week uh, and you, we sit in the same seats for the most part, right? And it's almost now you can get to a place where you're like, you don't even see the person, right? Because you just know they're gonna be sitting there, but it's like, there's not actually like any like, like real seeing going on. To, to begin to see then is to, uh, is to identify and to, to see something that would make you stop for a second and go, wow, I wonder if I should take a step further into this. And uh, we have to first then just kind of be stirred again to have eyes to see, to see each other, uh, particularly when there's a, a glaring need, but then also to develop spiritual eyes to see when the need might not be so glaring, uh, but to still have an ability to see into it. When I'm out in the lobby each and every week, the reason I'm out there is simply because I want to see as much of you as possible. And I just want a pastoral confession on stage. Okay, uh, if we're ever in a conversation uh, and, and like my eyes dart, uh, like I do apologize and then I go home and lose sleep, okay, and feel bad about it, right? Uh, but, but my eyes are darting because like I'm, I just, I, I just want to see people. And I want them to know like I, I see you. And, and one of the first starts of love is just like, I, I see you. I see you, right? I stand out in the lobby and, and, and I'm often looking for new people because I want them to know like, I see you. And I see you walking in with those eyes that are like, where am I? What do I do? How do I get rid of my children, right? Where's the bathroom, okay? Are those the only doors I'm allowed to walk through? Like that look, 
And it's, it's just that I, I see you. And then, and I pray for spiritual eyes every week that when I get here on Sunday, like I'm always looking for like the one person that wants to be here the least. And I can usually tell by their face, usually about halfway during the sermon, that doesn't agree, does not care a lick about our doctrine. And you say, God, I, I know I've got an opportunity here and I, and I know that I, I, I can't do it perfectly on my own, so will you just give me eyes to see them? And, and usually what I try to do is connect with that person each and every week just to say, hey, I just want you to know I saw you, and I don't care if you, I do care if you agree with me because I want what God has for you, um, but I don't care that if you agree with me to let you know that I just, I see you. And that we would begin to have eyes to see even that. And then as we walk out and as we leave, that we would just have eyes to see and see and see, that we would become great seers as we leave. And this is the first thing. Now, this would be a very bad story if Jesus had ended it there. And the man saw him and then kept on going. But that's not how Jesus ends the story. Instead, what Jesus is doing, brilliantly, brilliant storyteller, what Jesus is doing is he's progressing on what gospel love looks like. And he's saying gospel love can't start unless you have eyes to see. And so uh, first he's saying, get eyes to see, but then gospel love moves on. He, He says, so when he saw him, secondly then, he had compassion. He had compassion. Something uh, went in his heart. Something like, 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 like started going off. And so he saw and then he felt. He saw and then he felt. And for some of us, uh, this is where we, we begin to go, oh, I don't know if I want to go beyond seeing. And some of us are like, I don't even feel things anymore. And uh, sometimes what we have to do is we have to ask God to turn that back on. Like, would you give me compassion uh, for those whom I need to have compassion for? And by the way, the story is telling, who are we supposed to have compassion for? Everybody. Like, would you turn that compassion thing back on? And I think one of the best ways for us to get a new filter uh, or a new perspective around compassion is this, to, to begin to think about, for those of us who, who have found ourselves in this place in life, right, and those of us who have not, like you, you can probably conjecture or maybe just use it as an example, um, but for those of us who are parents, right, like uh, one of the things that, that we all think about as parents, right, is that I hope that everybody will love my child the way I love my child, like when, when, when Reagan's in school now, and, all right, and she's you know, going off now, and I drop her off, and there's all these other adults around, and there's all these other kids around, and I'm just in my head thinking, do you guys know how special she is? Do you know how amazing she is? Do you know how sweet her spirit is? Do you know whatever, whatever, whatever? And don't we all think about that and pray about that for our kids? That part of compassion is like, okay, how would it be, what would I want for my child in that moment? What would I want for my child if they were new? And so part of seeing new people at church is like you remembering like, uh, first off, what was it like for you to be new? But then also you thinking like if my kids showed up to church and, uh, and whatever the backstory is, maybe they moved, right? And now they need new community because they've just shown up uh, into a new city or they're coming back home, uh, back to Toledo, whatever it might be. Or, or maybe they're coming out of COVID vacation and they're like, okay, like it's time to like read back, engage in church or, uh, or whatever it is. Maybe something happened spiritually and for the first time in their life, they're thinking about going uh, into church or to discover faith all over again. And right, so you begin to see through that context, how would you want them to love your child in that? Or maybe the person that's coming in is that person who does not agree with us. 
And, and you would begin to think, okay, if my child was that child coming in who didn't agree, how would I react? How would I clap in a sermon if they were next to me? How, how would I want them to perceive Sunday morning? How, how would I want us to engage in them, with them? If, that, if, that, if it were my kid who walked in finally and didn't agree, how would I want them to be loved? Gosh, I think I've made my point over the months and years. I'm not talking about watering down the gospel. I'm talking about how do we love? How do we see them? And then how do we have compassion? And often compassion then is this, it's this, uh, first off, it's just a feeling, right? Compassion is, but it's often a feeling that comes from a deeper understanding. Doesn't compassion tend to grow as we understand more of the situation or the circumstance? A few years ago, um, I Somebody in my life who I was close to shared something with me um, that caused me to react to them in that moment with a look that now I could only look back and say was probably um, full of shame and guilt towards that person. And I didn't understand the way that I had looked at them um, for a while. And the reason I didn't understand is because I looked at them uh, with a look that said, you shouldn't have done that. And that is wrong and it's gross and I can't believe you. Until a few years later, when I had a similar conversation, but I was on the other side of it. And I shared this with somebody in my life and the way they looked at me was exactly how I had looked at that person years before. I went home that day and I called that person. I hadn't talked to this person in a few years and I called them and I said, I just want you to know, I'm so sorry. You didn't deserve that. I hope you can forgive me. See, compassion had begun to grow in me because all of a sudden I saw myself as somebody in need of it. The Samaritan saw him and then he had compassion. And compassion, true compassion is supposed to compel action. For again, this story would be very anticlimactic if the man had seen him, had compassion and kept walking. And so true gospel love doesn't get to bow out at any of the early steps. It has to go all the way through. And so first we see, and then we have compassion. We feel and understand. And then, thirdly, what do we do? This is what he does next. He saw him. He had compassion. And then these words, he went to him. He went to him. See, what gospel love does is gospel love is willing to then cross the chasm. And without going too far into the cultural context of the story, but I have already set up that the Samaritan and the Jew, they were sworn enemies. This is the last person who should have shown him love. There is a little bit of danger in crossing the road and pausing for the robbers could still be near. And Jerusalem to Jericho was a treacherous journey to journey down. And so just by stopping, he was putting himself at risk. But true gospel love stops sees, has compassion, and then crosses. And what this is teaching us is that we are to be proactive. We are to go to him or to her or to them or to they. We are to go. We're not just to see and to feel, but to then respond. 
And so this means for us, it is uh, that we then would get better at going to each other. And this doesn't have to be uh, hopefully facilitated from the top. It's not like we need to create a ministry or to have like this intentional prioritize, like this is how we go. But uh, as we journey and that as the gospel changes us, we just become goers, seers, feelers of compassion. And then we go, we move, we go to him or her, realizing it might cause us to pause and to stop for a moment when we had a busy journey journey that we were on, uh, but by the love of Christ, we are now compelled to go to him or to her, that we would become good here and not here at going to them. I will go to you. I'm not going to wait. I don't have to wait. I don't have to wait sometimes even for you to come and ask me. Like, I just see the need. I know the need. And so I'm going to go to you. I'm going to be proactive in this gospel love. And then after that, again, step one, step two, step three, still this story is pretty bad if it stops. Imagine, he saw him, he had compassion, he ran over to him. He looked at him and said, why were you traveling alone, moron? This is a dangerous road. (laughs) Now, what did he do next? He helped. He helped. He went to him. He saw him. He had compassion. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he kept out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He saw him, he had compassion, he went to him and then he served him at his own expense. And true love is when we move to the point where we serve others at our own expense expense, our own expense of time, our own expense of convenience, our own expense of crossing the chasm of what would divide us and uh, being willing to do so, our own expense of um, uh, just not journeying, 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 but on the journey to make sure we stop and see and help. Uh, In this case, it was an expense of uh, even personal financial expense uh, to stop and to help. He served the man at his own expense, and it is the combination of these four things and the building up of these four things that is gospel love. To see, feel, to go, and to serve. And here's what the man does. Jesus then continues uh, a little conversation with the lawyer at the end, and he goes, so lawyer, who's the one who loved his neighbor? He goes, the one who showed mercy. In other words, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, hey, neighbor, who's the one who understands this gospel? The Levite? The priest, in all of their knowledge, in all of their sound doctrine, in all of their quotation of scripture, or the Samaritan who stopped and loved? Who's the one who really gets it? Who's the one who really gets it? And there's one way to look at this story It's the way I've presented it this morning, and it's a fine way to look at the story, and we need to look at it in this lens 
Clearly, today, most of you, as I've been journeying through this story, you're, you're thinking about, okay, I hope I'm not the Levite, and I hope I'm not the priest, and I hope you're not the Levite, and I hope you're not the priest. And, and, and there's a part of this story that says, I, I want to be like this Samaritan who is willing to do all of these things and then to serve at his own expense. And I believe that that is good, and we need to know that because it helps us to understand what practical, biblical, gospel love looks like. And I hope that we become that. But the question then becomes, how do we become that. And the way we become that is not just by looking at ourselves as the Samaritan and saying, I need to be that instead of that. There's another way we got to look at the story. And when we begin to look at the story in this way, it doesn't just teach us what to do. It actually changes us so that we can become it. And so what's the other way to look at the story? Not where you're the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. Oh, the other way to look at the story You're the man on the side of the road in need of compassion, beaten up by life, or just simply dead in your sin, rebelled against God, thinking you can do it on your own, like the lawyer trying to justify yourself, or the one who doesn't agree doctrinally, or the one who's just carried the weight of life in great need. And when you were in that spot, and spiritually speaking, each and every one of us were in that spot. No one does good. No, not one, the scripture says. Each of us dead in our own sin. Each of us following the metaphor of the story on the side of the road, completely helpless, spiritually left for dead. And religion organized in its way through the priest and the Levite, has nothing of which to offer us. It cannot bring us back to life. Instead, we needed someone else. We needed somebody who should have been our sworn enemy. We needed somebody who would be willing to cross a chasm to come down. Somebody who would be willing to pay a price at their own risk and at their own expense to come and serve us in our desperate state. We needed somebody who would cross the chasm, who would see us. Somebody who would feel and have compassion and understand us. But somebody who would not just see or feel. Somebody who would come to us because we in that state would have never had the strength to be able to go to them. And we needed somebody who would be willing at his own expense to heal us. And so we have one. And the divide was so much greater than some racial tension. Oh, it was the divide of heaven and earth. The the divide of perfection and sinful. And so we have a good Samaritan, Christ, who crossed the greater chasm to come from heaven to earth and who sees each and every one of us. He sees you. He sees you who might be here or might watch or he sees they who would show up one day who doesn't agree with us. He sees them all. He sees us all. And his compassion compelled him to action. 
So he didn't just move from heaven to earth. He moved from earth to the cross, where at his own expense, not just with the potential risk of danger, but facing the gravest of all dangers, went to the cross, and at his own expense, his very life and his relationship with the Father surrendered and gave it all to us so that our wounds would be healed, so that our sin would be forgiven. He lifted us up. And like like the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, he said, all expenses are now paid and covered by the blood of the cross. And see, that was gospel love. That was gospel love poured out to each and every one of us. That's what we needed for our salvation and our deeper healing in this story. And then we just end. We end with Jesus' words. Now go and do likewise. So friends, may we be a church that believes this, that preaches it, that lets no room for sound, uh, unsound doctrine. But may we be something and not nothing because all of it, all of it is rooted in gospel love. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see to see each other, to see those who are new, to see those who disagree, to see those who you would compel us to bring the love of Christ to. And Father, may we be known individually, as a church, not just as a place of solid doctrine, but as a place of love. May we answer that question that all will ask, will they love me? May it be yes compelled by the beauty of the gospel. For we each asked, will you love me? And you said yes. Help us to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connectcard. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.